You're listening to a podcast of Spurious Morality. Welcome to a podcast of Spurious Morality. Uh, This is the first episode in uh, what we're hoping will be a a pretty long-running series. We've sort of set ourselves the challenge of going through every single series of Doctor Who from 1963 to the present. Uh, And this is season one, so we are starting in 1963. I'm Johnston, and with me I have, uh, for the very first time, Greg. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Very excited to be here. I've been uh, I've been listening to the first uh, several episodes, and I'm happy to jump in. Ah, oh, fantastic! Uh, and uh, we've got. Uh, I think it's fair to call you our resident first Doctor expert. Really, uh, we've got Jimmy. Hi. Yeah, definitely my favourite of the Doctors. Uh, so you're you're down for every single first Doctor series, aren't you? In this sort of run that we're doing. Yeah, absolutely. I'm really looking forward to it. So, yeah. Um, well, let's jump straight in. Uh, I'm going to ask you guys, first of all, uh, what is your favourite story from uh, season one? So, Greg, you go first. It's hard to say it's anything but the Aztecs, honestly. Um, of course, we'll talk about it later, but it's just such a it's such a well-constructed, tightly written, intriguing piece of drama. Um Close runner-up would be Unearthly Child for me, though. Um, the whole the whole first story, you know, the the first episode, of course, and then the the, the Cave of Skulls part as well. Uh, both fantastic, agreed. Uh, Jimmy, what about you? For me, it's a tough choice. I love the whole season, but I'd have to say for the top spot, either Marco Polo or the Aztecs, depending on my mood, which one I'd give the nod any given day. I'm, I'm detecting that we're going to have a lot of good things to say about the Aztecs uh, over the next sort of hour or so. Um, I would pick something slightly different, actually, uh, but I would pick The Reign of Terror as my favourite from that series. Um, I just think that there's... A much higher level of jeopardy there than you get in uh, most historicals and there's a lot of sort of intrigue and backstabbery going on um, I do quite enjoy it it sort of manages to sustain its six parts which some stories uh, don't manage to do so as well um, let's go straight into uh, An Unearthly Child then uh, which uh, as Greg's already sort of suggested it's it's effectively two stories. You've got the very first episode and then you have the caveman stuff that it leads into. It's obviously all one serial and was made that way. 
but it does have that introductory episode, uh, An Unearthly Child itself. Um, what are your sort of thoughts on that, Greg? Well, I mean, for starters, the first episode is basically perfect television. Um, it, it holds up. You could, a modern audience could watch that episode today and enjoy it. Um, it really introduces all of the regular characters very well. It sets up um, the conflict between Ian and Barbara and the doctor and kind of has Susan caught in the middle of it, which is the defining relationship for the first few stories of the season. Really, there's there's just very little to complain about. It's, it, it's very atmospheric. Uh, the directing is fantastic. There's all kinds of interesting camera angles and shots. There's some like point of view shots. There's some character speaking to camera. Just fascinating. Um, definitely one of the best pilot episodes, even though I know there's also the actual pilot episode. Um, but one of the best first episodes of a show that you could ask for, especially for something that started 58 years ago. Um, and then in terms of the rest of the story, what really jumped out to me re-watching it was just how stressful and how intense uh, the, the caveman parts are. Like, I, I don't find the, the actual intrigue amongst the cavemen themselves to be all that interesting, but what's happening to the TARDIS crew is incredibly compelling. Like there's a point in episode three where it feels like Barbara's about to have a nervous breakdown. Nobody wants to be there. Nobody's having fun. The doctor is a completely alien, enigmatic, and potentially violent character that nobody trusts. And it it's looking back on that for endless seasons of Doctor Who that we've now had, it, it almost feels like a different show. And it's it's really enjoyable for that reason. Yeah, it, it's certainly... Um, it's a stage where the show hasn't settled into it. It's Even in those early days, it did sort of develop its very own sort of comfortable format. And we had historical and sci-fi and rinse and repeat. Um Obviously, on an earthly child, it is a mix of both. That first episode kind of gives us the sci-fi, and it also gives us one of the very few looks we get at 1960s uh, London, or 1960s Earth at all, uh, in actual 60s Doctor Who. But then it takes us straight back to the past, and I do think that the going so far into the past and you know dealing with such primitive characters... It is a bit of a mission statement because immediately you've got such a powerful contrast. And yeah, you could very easily argue that it is kind of the furthest away from the reality that Ian and Barbara are used to, that they're taken away from. Um, All the other historicals have some kind of... They take place at a stage where humanity has developed into some kind of society and that kind of thing, whereas... And an earthly child shows the very early stages of that. Uh, Jimmy, uh, your thoughts on the first ever serial? Well, for me, I do very much consider it, despite the being produced together, as two separate stories. Because I obviously everyone loves the very first episode and it makes a great introduction to the whole TARDIS team. It's brilliant. And then you've got the caveman stuff, which obviously is somewhat less engaging. But at the same time, you do, as Greg was saying, have the whole dynamic of the TARDIS team getting to know each other and making those connections but 
for me, the reason I consider it two separate stories is people use the argument that, you know, but at the end they land in the TARDIS, that's a cliffhanger, so it's the same story. But by that logic, everything up until Marco Polo is a single story because at the end of Unearthly, you have the cliffhanger with the TARDIS radiation meter going off. Then you have the cliffhanger at the end of the Daleks of, you know, the ship falling apart. And then at the end of Edge of Destruction, you have them finding the footprint in the snow. So, I mean, to consider Unearthly Child a single story, you'd have to consider logically everything through to Marco Polo. So I find the caveman story becomes better when you look at it divorced from an unearthly child as a separate thing and instead consider it on its own merits. Because if you consider it as a single story, it's always going to be just the the less good follow-on from unearthly. Whereas if you consider it its own thing, then you can really focus on the TARDIS team getting to know each other and enjoying that developing dynamic and getting to know the characters. So, yeah, I do love both both stories, the whole story, depending how you consider it. but. Yeah, I think definitely there's something that needs to be considered separately more often and that fandom could reappraise the story if they sort of looked at it through that different lens. I have to admit, I'm, I'm sort of fairly with you there. I do, I really struggle to be watching, to watch the third episode and to go, oh yeah, this is exactly the same story as it was two episodes ago. They have moved location. There is a completely different story going on. That first episode is very, very self-contained. Um, I mean, I, I think it works perfectly well, and I'm glad that we have that first episode. It could, the entire, the events of that first episode could actually have happened within the first five minutes if they'd have wanted to, and boom, with that's it. We'd have been straight into caveman times. So to sort of spend that full 25 minutes on it and really set up the show it did really set up the show um i i think the fact that we still have it now can be sort of credited to the strength of that first episode um but yeah i think it's it's easy to understand how you would split them up um i, I feel as though this question might might cause a little bit of trouble say you were to split uh, an unearthly child off from the rest of the serial what name would you give to the rest of the serial? Well, for me, what I'd do is you've obviously got the options of the 100,000 BC working title or the Cave of Skulls, the first episode. But personally, what I think works best for it is actually doing the same thing as the Keys of Marinus and naming it after its last episode. So the Firemaker, because, you know, the Cave of Skulls relates to one particular episode. 100,000 BC probably isn't the actual year it's set in logically in terms of evolutionary history. And then you've got the Tribe of Gum, which they're never called on screen. So for me, just taking the Firemaker title and applying it to the whole three episodes, that's the title that I would consider for the latter part. I quite like that, yeah. Uh, have you any thoughts, Greg? I mean, I grew up reading the old Peter Haining reference books and so on. So for me, it's the tribe of gum is just what it's called. Um, but I do actually like the, uh, the fire maker. I think that's really a very thematically appropriate title for the story because it's all about basically all of the different characters trying to become the fire maker. So great idea. Yeah, absolutely. I like that. Um, let's move on then. Uh, let's move on to the second story, which you could perhaps argue is the most important 
in Doctor Who's history, uh, that is the Daleks. Um, pretty self-explanatory as to why it is quite an important one. Uh, what are your thoughts on the Daleks, Greg? So, a few things. Um, first of all, I do like how it carries on the uncomfortable relationship amongst the TARDIS crew. The Doctor deliberately, well, as it turns out, not really, but deliberately sabotaging his own ship in order to coerce his companions into going to explore the Dalek City with him is something that would never happen even as soon as the end of this season. Um, Again, everyone exploring the dead planet of Scaro is not presented as this exciting adventure, this opportunity to set foot onto an alien world. It's vaguely terrifying. Um, Ian and Barbara and Susan just want to leave. And it's the doctor who has to coerce them into exploring. Um, Obviously, the introduction of the Daleks is a seismic moment for the show. It's the thing that kept the show going. That first cliffhanger, even though it's someone just in practicality, waving a plunger in front of the camera is iconic for a reason. Um, my, my issue with the story, and, and I want to, this is kind of getting to what, what Jimmy was saying about the, the way that the show was made at that time. It's seven episodes long, and, it, and it, it does tend to bog down, especially near the end. But I think that that's more of a reflection of the serialized nature of the show back then. I mean, I think even as soon as the Troughton era, like individual episodes are really, are visibly part of a cohesive whole. But here, every episode has its own title. Every week is really a little self-contained story and they just make up part of this bigger block. So, you know, if you sit down and you watch this episode, the story rather, all seven parts in one sitting, all three hours, by the time episode six rolls around and we spend 15 minutes watching everyone slowly jumping over a small gap, it can drag a bit, but viewed as it's originally intended, 25 minutes once a week with no opportunity to go back and rewatch to catch yourself up, it's it's a much different experience. Um, and I think in that sense, it's a very interesting adventure story, which is something that Terry Nation was very good at writing. And indeed something he did, again with The Keys of Marinus, which is six separate stories, uh, essentially just um, set in between when the TARDIS lands and when it takes off again. Uh, yeah, it's, I've never actually looked at the first Dalek story that way before, but you are absolutely right, it is... Essentially, seven separate adventures um, that take place on Scaro and have that recurring theme of Daleks, Thals, war, and everything else that's going on. Uh, Jimmy, talk to us about the Daleks. For me, surprisingly, the Daleks aren't necessarily the best part of the Daleks. I mean, obviously, they're hugely important to the future of the show, but um, it's a brilliant story. But for me, the Daleks aren't actually the best part of their own title story. For me, I love the whole dynamic. We've still got the team getting used to each other and adapting to their new life. We've got the Doctor's, you know, sabotaging his own TARDIS to sort of force them to do what he wants and how that backfires on him. And um, the other thing would be that um, the Daleks aren't actually 
as they are in the later stories. Like I love the part where they find the um, cure for the radiation poisoning on Susan and since she's got two, they're like, oh, okay, we'll use one to research. You can actually take the others back to the TARDIS crew and that would never happen in the later era. The Daleks actually, you know, not betraying you. They're, they're actually letting you use a cure. They're, yeah, so it's interesting to see this different side of the Daleks. And the other thing that I love about it is, especially, I already said the dynamics of the whole TARDIS team, but Barbara and Ian in particular with the whole, there's nothing to rely on here, nothing, oh, there's me. Like, I love what the extended universe has done in the future with um them ending up together as confirmed on the Sarah Jane adventures, but this is really the first little seed of it. And it's so nice to see their relationship develop and begin. And um, also the other thing with Barbara and Ian that I liked again was later in the story when they convinced the Thals to attack the Daleks um, at this stage in the show's history, you'd expect things, moral issues or whatever to be divided on a line where, you know, the Doctor and Susan are together on one side and Barbara and Ian are on the other, but they actually play against that and Barbara and Ian disagree and Ian's like, we can't force them to attack the Daleks just to get our fluid link just for us. That's selfish. It's not going to, you know, be any good for them. Who, Why should they care about our fluid link? And usually you'd expect Barbara to agree with him, but she's like, oh, you're just quibbling. We need this. We are more important than this. It makes such a change to the dynamic to see them on opposite sides, especially so early on when they've only really got each other to rely on. So I really loved the way the story handled their different opinions and didn't fall into the trap of just having them them be on one side, Doctor and Susan on the other, but instead played with the dynamic and did something unique and different. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's a shame we don't see a bit more of that really because everybody often talks about you know there being a lot of conflict in this first season you know the doctor is still very dark and mysterious and he does some nasty things makes some nasty decisions especially in the first few stories he's manipulative he's an unpleasant character um but actually there's very little conflict ever between ian and barbara so yeah it is it's very interesting of you to point that out it's it's something that we just don't really get as much of as would have been nice perhaps i also think it's quite a good story for susan um she does she gets more to do uh than in most others um you know she goes on her own to go back to the tardis to get the uh the case of um drugs and she um so it does other various bits, but then unfortunately, along with the Doctor, spends most of the last episode, um, kind of fastened up in a in a uh, in a Dalek cell. So it's sort of it's good to see her get to do things on her own or act on her own, because I think for uh, the rest of her run, except maybe Marco Polo, she she doesn't really get to do that. She doesn't get to play by herself as it were i think um just sorry um i think the one exception you're saying it's mainly marco polo where she gets stuff to do on her own i'd have to disagree and i'll cover it more when we get to the story but i think the sense rights was probably outside of an unearthly child the best characterization susan got and how she got to stand on her own and she received the message from the sense rights and so yeah i'll get on to that when we get up to that story but um yeah it's a sad thing that susan 
often was underserved by the scripts and that was a good example of a time that they actually did serve her well. Uh, and you are absolutely right. I completely forgotten about the censorites, but yes, she um, she does get to kind of do her own thing there as well. Um, let's let's move on to what I think it's fair to say is the weird one, uh, the Edge of Destruction. This sort of bizarre, claustrophobic two parter that really brings the conflict between the characters uh, into focus. Um, Greg, go ahead and tell us what you think. Yeah, it's such a strange almost psychedelic kind of story just because everyone is acting so wildly out of character or at least what we know of their characters at this point it's um it's scary it's threatening i mean i i keep coming back to this idea but really like these first three stories all follow that same idea where tardis travel is not an exciting adventure it's a it's a terrifying and dangerous thing and and now we've actually taken the the crew and set them against each other um you know stuff like Susan with the with the pair of scissors and and the doctor accusing Ian and Barbara of being saboteurs and it it, it really builds to a head and then realizing that it's just a fault in the ship and that there's not actually anything wrong with them it's just the ship getting into their heads trying to communicate that they're in danger it diffuses the whole thing and then. I, I love how it stays with the characters at the end and actually sticks with that awkward aftermath where the doctor has to apologize to Barbara and everyone has to kind of repair, you know, what relationships they have uh, before getting into the next story. Um, I, yeah, it's, it's, it's wonderfully experimental. It's surprising that it's only two episodes long because, of course, at that time, watching it, you had no idea when a given story was going to end. Really, I mean, you, the for the first three episodes, you can't ask for much better than what you got. Uh, yeah, absolutely, I'd agree. It, it's the fact that we have three very, very different stories to launched the series and to sort of really I mean it didn't just launch it it established it it's okay Unearthly Child launched it it was the Daleks that established it and then Edge of Destruction it it's where some of the conflict between the characters ends and actually it's when we first start to see a more sympathetic Doctor the Doctor that we will come to like the Doctor that Ian and Barbara will come to like uh Jimmy, your thoughts? Well, of course, it is a very uh, weird and odd story in terms of how the regulars are portrayed at first, but it's absolutely worth it for the ending where Barbara and the Doctor make up and everyone, I think both Susan and Ian, try to push him to do it. And, you know, Barbara is not just like, oh, it's fine. She actually does sort of be like, you were very rude to us, you know, what's going on. And he fully apologised and basically credits the fact that everything worked out in the end to Barbara and it's such a lovely thing to see their dynamic flourish and just start to improve and it's that that makes the whole story worth it if it were just the first episode and a half and he didn't apologize for it in the end it'd probably be one of the worst stories of the era but instead they handled the dynamic really well near the end and that certainly improved it for me um the other thing with this story that I um find a little bit frustrating is how fandom have misinterpreted or well not misinterpreted but taken something that was said and that's when the doctor is 
unconscious after they've all had that trouble at the start. They're like, oh, but Ian checks on him and says his pulse is fine, so he must have only one heart. And then you get that whole retcon in the books about, oh, the second heart grows during regeneration. But uh, for me, it's a bit silly to look at it as confirmation that um, he does have only one heart because, A, they're all off their heads at the moment. They've all gone quite nuts. Like, I wouldn't trust what Ian said. I wouldn't trust that there is only one pulse. So he'd just, you know, he's off off his face. He doesn't know what's going on. And even if he did, even if there was only one pulse, there's a perfectly simple explanation they could have used in retcons in the future. Obviously, yeah, the doctor's been knocked out and everything's going so terrible. One of his hearts has stopped. It's a sign of how bad things are going. And so I just think it's a pity that fandom didn't pick up on it and, you know, interpret it a different way and instead have to, you know, go with the retcon. But, um, yeah, that's something I often like doing when I watch these earlier stories where there's contradictions with later canon. I like to find an explanation that works. And so, yeah, that's the one I came up with for that particular bit. Yeah, uh, I think it's, it is it is interesting to sort of uh, look at those earlier episodes and sort of see what um, what contradicts what was established later on, canon-wise. I think what's actually very interesting about Doctor Who is, is how little contradiction there actually is. Um, there are elements like that, but just to take another example, if you go back and you watch the first Star Wars movie, there is so much in that that makes absolutely no sense based on what we learn later. And yet my experience watching this entire first season of Doctor Who, I mean, very little contradiction of most recent episodes uh, of the 13th Doctor accepted, uh, very little contradiction of what we know. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I think it's perhaps why fandom do. Uh, when something does pop up, when there is something to consider, fandom sort of really does descend on it and quibble about it. Maybe that's the reason why, because actually there's very little to pick up on. Um, I don't think we can sort of complete the Edge of Destruction section without talking about uh, Hartnell's speech towards the end. Uh, it's just this most fantastic scene and Hartnell clearly just throws himself into it and it, it, for the first ever time, you get that sort of uplifting, oh gosh, yes, he is the Doctor, and it's fantastic. It, you know, it's up there with Capaldi's final speech, and it's up there with Tom Baker's Homo sapiens speech in Ark in Space. It's just one of those truly great I am the Doctor moments. Um, but yeah, it, it's. I think if anybody hadn't warmed to Hartnell by that point, that was probably it. That was probably the moment where they went, Okay, yeah, I like this guy and I like this character. Let's go to Marco Polo. Um, it's our first missing story, uh, which is incredibly sad because it, everything suggests that this would have been a fantastic, big, epic visual treat with obvious studio considerations, limitations taken into account. Um, to a lot of people, this, I think it's fair to say, would be sort of the holy grail of missing episodes. Uh, I'm more of a Troughton fan. I've got a long list of Troughtons that I'd rather see beforehand. But I completely understand why um, Marco Polo is so sought after and why so many people really, really want to just get even a hint of what this story would be like. Uh, but we do have audio. And we do have uh, reconstructions and telesnaps and all that kind of thing. 
and uh, I think everything suggests that it would have been a fantastic story to see. Uh, what are your thoughts on it, Greg? Well, to just briefly touch on the missing episode element of it, you, one of the reasons why it was the Holy Grail was because up until relatively recently, we didn't even have telesnaps for it. So there, apart from a few set photos, there was absolutely no visual record of it at all. Um, now we at least have a visual record of the story, even if it's just in still photos. Um, that being said, what I like about Marco Polo as a story, I touched on this earlier with the Daleks, um, about how each individual episode is sort of its own thing. And I think Marco Polo, and then especially Keys of Marinus, which we'll get to, it, it does this sort of anthology format that other Doctor Who stories generally, with the exception of maybe the chase, just don't do. I mean, yes, the, the Daleks, like I said, is, is sort of a, a series of self-contained adventures, but it's all on Scaro. It's all with the Thals. It's all with the Daleks. It's, it's the same overarching story. Uh, Marco Polo, yes, it's the overarching story of the TARDIS crew traveling with Marco Polo to the court of Kublai Khan, but it's set over a period of what has to be months, and each episode is really just an individual vignette from that journey. And it's only at the end that we actually get to the court of Kublai Khan. And what I like about that is, is the timescale that it takes place over really allows the relationship between the characters to develop. Um, I think the doctor that we see starting in Marinus going forward is much different than the doctor that we've seen up until the end of Edge of Destruction. And it's Marco Polo and the fact that he's spending months with these characters, with his companions, that I think is what defines that. And so that's one of the reasons why it's such a shame that we we don't have this story. And it's it's even more of a shame because from everything we know about missing episodes, there's absolutely no reason why we should have lost Marco Polo because season one was widely distributed. All of the places where we found missing episodes should have had it. And yet, for some reason, it's it's gone it's uh yeah it's one of those that's a bit of a mystery um and the fact that it's all seven episodes as well just sort of compounds that it maybe if you know maybe you could understand if one or two had sort of slipped by the wayside but it, it's an entire seven episode serial and we've just we've nothing and like you say um odds on it should actually have been found i suppose uh, Jimmy, Marco Polo, your thoughts? It's definitely one of the best stories of the season. It's, as, you, as you've said, the um, dynamic between the regulars really gets fleshed out. The long time that's set over certainly helps with that. Susan gets that brilliant little sub-story with Ping Cho and their relationship, and that really helps flesh her out and flesh Ping Cho as a guest character out. And it's, yeah, really great for them. And the other one I like with dynamic-wise was Barbara's little bit where she's talking to Susan uh, just after or just before, I forget which, but around the time of the sandstorm and they're looking at the stars and talking about, oh, one day we'll get back home and Susan's just like, oh, no, not yet. And it shows how quick the Barbara and Ian have grown on the team. And, I mean, Susan obviously liked them as teachers even from the start, but um, by now the Doctor's even grown on them and they've grown on him and, yeah, it's just such a lovely dynamic and 
um, regards to the missing episodes thing, it is such a shame the entire story is missing because even if a single episode survived, I think it would, it's already one of the most popular Hartnell stories. I think with any of it surviving, it would be reevaluated to an even better position. And I remember at the time that we, that um, Enemy and Webb were recovered, the rumour for months beforehand was Marco Enemy Webb, Marco Enemy Webb. And so as much as I love Enemy of the World and the Web of Fear, I was so disappointed that there was nothing of Marco Polo found. And I still hope to this day that, I mean, as we've said, it's one of the more likely episodes to be found and it's really surprising it hasn't. So I guess I just hold out hope that it will be eventually. Um, I, I think everybody's probably uh, holding out the same hope. Um, yeah, I really think we're missing a a very significant part of the show's development, of its early development and evolution. And I, I really would love to just get more of an idea of how the story was visually, because I don't think even Telesnaps uh, fully do it justice at all. Uh, by the sounds of it, um, and you know, by accounts of people that were there and working on it, it was something special. They really did kind of go above and beyond uh, while producing it. Let's have a look at the keys of Marinus then. Um, Terry Nation's back, and it's a very different story. It's Terry Nation not doing Daleks, which sort of became a very rare thing, but I suppose at this stage it was just another job for that guy that managed to deliver seven scripts nice and quick. Um, it's not fandom's favourite, the keys of Marinus, but I think there's quite a lot in there to love. Um, but we'll go to Greg. What are your thoughts? Yeah, you know, I've never really understood the negative reputation that this story has. I mean, it 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 is punching way beyond its weight in terms of what it's trying to do production-wise. There's a number of scenes that are just set in essentially empty black rooms because they don't have the sets for it. But um, that's that's just part and parcel of 1960s Doctor Who, really. I mean, that that doesn't bother me. I, I love this type of story. I love the story. I love the chase. I, I love stories where every episode is a distinct entity, and this is really the peak of that, where you've got this overarching mission for the keys, but the characters are going from place to place and even splitting up and having their own separate adventures, and it's it's the sort of thing that I wish Doctor Who would have done more of because I think that a story like this is a brilliant way to take a large four-person TARDIS crew and really give them all something to do. Um, and it's also a good way at this time to give individual cast members a week off as well. Um, but I, I think this is really also the first story where we see the doctor as hero where the doctor steps forward to advocate in Ian's defense when he's put on trial and investigates the murder and figures out what's going on. And, and this is to me like really the first time that we see this character as someone that we can actively root for because he, he's even still a little removed in, in Marco Polo, but here he's, he's really taking, taking that active interest in, in making things better. And I think, from here going forward is when we see the doctor that we know and love. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, that entire um, 
the sort of courtroom stuff, it's it's some of the most interesting and gripping Doctor Who has ever been, I think. Um I think with the you know, as we've said, it, it's it's essentially six individual stories. Um I do think that I, I love that format. It, it's a great idea. It, it works so well with Doctor Who, and this is the pinnacle of that. It has been used since, uh, but um, it, it does mean that it's very easy for there to be sort of peaks and troughs throughout the serial. And you know, I love the millennial stuff, the courtroom stuff, but I have to admit, I'm not the biggest fan of the jungle bit and the ice bit it does seem to slow down a little bit there and i think that's maybe where the negative reputation comes from it's the fact that it does have its up and downs throughout um jimmy keys of marinus i think it's um great that it has the variety of all the different settings and different sub stories because, of course, some of them you're going to like more than others, naturally. I certainly agree the Jungle episode was probably my least favourite of the story. And, yes, the trial at the end for Ian is probably my favourite part. But I do think um, also that the Snow episodes, uh, I think they're better than you might have given them credit for. I think what happens with um, Barbara and, you know, that's, horrible guy who wants to, you know, um, he's got her trapped there and Ian has to rescue her. It's, you know, like some sometimes that gets played very differently, like later in the, what, the next season in Romans, it's almost played as comedy, even though it's rather horrific, what's happening with her and Nero. But here they take it seriously and you really feel worried for her and I think she plays it brilliantly. And also Barbara, again, gets the other highlight of the story in the, the Velvet Web when, you know, the whole rest of the TARDIS team is stuck believing the illusion and Barbara's the only one who knows what's really going on. And the dynamic with the team is just electrifying there. They, they all think she's gone mad and she's scared out of her mind, but she still wants to save them, wants to do what she can. And I think it's, a, I mean, other than the Aztecs, I think it's probably the highlight of the season for Barbara performance-wise. I think she really does amazing with that particular sub-story and, yeah, definitely deserves more credit for it. I think uh, it's interesting you mentioned the Velvet Web, actually, because I think that's an absolutely great section of the story and it's a great concept. And the creatures in that who, off the top of my head, I think they're called the Morpho or something like that. I think it was the Morpho brains, which is just such a lovely name for them because they are little brains with these eye stalks, it's such a weird concept, but they really make them scary. I mean, despite the fact that it's just a silly-looking thing in a jar, what they can do is horrifying and really handled well. And I'm amazed they've never been brought back at any point in the last was it 58 years or so. Um, it's such a great concept. You know, They can literally pull the wool over your eyes and they're, they're sort of parasites that just... In, integrate themselves into a society and sort of take over by stealth and make everybody think that everything's all right as they're enslaving them. It's such a great concept and it's actually a concept that's perhaps slightly too big for just a single episode. It was done incredibly well in Keys of Marinus, but I, I certainly would have liked to have seen or heard more of them. So there you go, big finish. There's one you've not brought back yet. That I know of, anyway. This is when somebody pops up and tells me they're in a Benice Summerfield or something like that. Um, let's uh, move on. Um, next up is the Aztecs. 
I have to admit, I'm not as big a fan of this one as I know a lot of other people are. I don't dislike it. Um, it just seems to be this sort of fairly odd and fairly sort of straightforward four-parter in the middle of a series of very big and brave ideas, a series that so far has overreached itself. And I've always sort of viewed the, the Aztecs as them kind of playing it safe. They do incredibly well. It's you know an incredibly good story and there are some very strong sequences in there. But I just feel as though it, it gets lost in the the experimental nature of the rest of the season um i I suspect you may both not disagree with uh, so you may both not agree with me on that but um i'd love to hear your thoughts greg you go first so i really like the story um it is a more straightforward quote-unquote conventional doctor who story based on what we would come to understand as doctor who but and so you're right, it, it does feel a little bit out of place with some of the really wild-eyed sci-fi ideas that we see going on here. But we talk a lot about you can't rewrite history, not one line, about that being the most impactful part of it. And it is, but but really what I what I like about it is is that it's it's a challenge to the format of historical stories that they didn't really ever go back to. A lot of historical stories basically involve the TARDIS landing in a historical period, the crew looking around, then getting into trouble, getting locked up somewhere, and then spending the rest of the story just trying to get back to the TARDIS and leave. This is the only one where you have a companion who actively says, I want to get involved. I want to make history different. I see something here that I know is wrong and I want to change it. And yeah, it, it's a it's a fantastic story for Barbara in that way because she's a history teacher. She has an understanding of history that many people don't have. And when she sees the opportunity to change things for the better, when she sees the opportunity to end what looks to her just like mindless slaughter and suffering, that's the kind of person she is that she's going to try to change it. And it, and it sets the doctor against her once again. But in this case, it's because he understands the consequences of doing that. And the scenes between Barbara and the doctor are some of the highlights of the entire Hartnell era of the entire classic series. It's, 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 it's just fantastic. And I also just generally, I like it being a four part story. Um, I, again, because, you know, we're not supposed to watch these, these, these stories just in bulk, but that's what we do. And so watching a 90 minute story as opposed to a two and a half, three hour story really allows it to be, much tighter, much more focused, much better paced. It's it, it 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 rolls along pretty quickly, and there's nice little subplots for every character. It's 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 a it's a really good example of of Doctor Who of this time. I think it, it's. I mean, you mentioned that obviously it can be considered as quietly uh, quite conventional, but actually, I suppose at this stage there was no convention. There was no. We're so early on and the series is still finding its feet that I suppose this story establishes the convention as opposed to falls into it. So I guess it's that got that going in its favour. Uh, Jimmy, go ahead. 
for me, this is definitely the highlight of the season. And I think it's really good that all four members of the TARDIS team get their own really strong story in it. Even Susan, who's sort of in the cutout scenes that, you know, filmed ahead of time and just cut in, even she still manages to get something interesting to do. I mean, obviously Barbara gets the highlight of being thought of as a goddess, quite rightly, I must add. <laughs> She's brilliant. But um, it her whole desire to make a difference and change things for the better and, you know, save a whole society is just such strong characterization for it because we rarely see companions wanting to change history. I mean, I think the closest the series come after her would probably be when Donna makes the 10th Doctor save just one family at the end of um, the fires of Pompeii. But here, you know, Barbara wants to save the world. She wants to make things better for everyone. And the Doctor's confrontation with her afterwards, oh, a happy day for you. It's worked so well, hasn't it? And she's just, you know, million tears and he just straight away softens and, you know, he wants to help her and he's very apologetic and it's such good dynamic for them. And then, of course, his own story, the dynamic with Kameka is beautiful. I love their relationship. He, like the way he proposes to her accidentally and that beautiful face he pulls as he realises what's going on. And Ian laughing about it later about, oh, your fiancé, congratulations. And Doc's like, oh, it's, um, yeah, it, but at the end, of course, he's still heartbroken to leave her and she's heartbroken to see him go. And the way he puts down that little um, am amulet thing that she gave him and he's going to leave it in the tomb and he just sort of pauses and turns around and comes back for it and quickly heads off. Like, it shows how much it meant to him. I mean, River Song Hu, Kameka is the best relationship the Doctor's had. It's, it's such, yeah, I cannot enough speak highly of how great I find that. And then... Ian, of course, he gets the whole dynamic where he's training to lead the armies, he's got to fight the other candidates and the Doctor accidentally getting him poisoned and him still, you know, even after he's been poisoned, he comes very close to still winning that fight. I mean, it's only at the last minute he gets beaten and that shows just how strong he is. And when Barbara comes to the rescue, you know, if you want to save him, then, you know, use your godly powers. And it's like, no, I'll just threaten to slit your throat. And it's like, whoa, Barbara. The sheer badassery of going up to the rival priest and just being ready to threaten, you know, death and destruction on him. I don't need godly powers. It's such powerful drama. And, yeah, Susan, of course, her, her story is a lot smaller, and but she still gets to stand up for justice like Barbara does. Like when they tell her, you know, you'll be told who you're going to marry. I mean, she probably knows she's in danger if she disagrees, but she, she wants to stand up for what's right. And she's like, I'm not going to be told. And... I mean, people, you know, the audience these days look at this, oh, stupid Susan making a mistake. But I think it's just a sign of how much she cares about justice and what's right. And I think it's actually a powerful moment for her. I'd agree. Absolutely. Um, I've always viewed that as sort of Susan being inspired to defiance by Barbara, I suppose is the best way of describing it. Um, it, it's a very, very good story for all four characters and um, it's fair to say that other stories do leave characters behind and when Doctor Who returns to that dynamic of three companions, um, we always seem to encounter the same problem. It's that there's there's just not enough for every regular character to do. Uh, we've seen it in the Davison era, we've seen it in the Whitaker era. Um so yeah, it's it it does a very good job of making sure everyone has something to do, 
like you say, Susan's story is a little bit on the smaller side, but nevertheless, it's still very powerful and she still gets to play a strong role. Um, all right, we'll move on to the Censorites. Um, some would call it Doctor Who's first dud. Um, I'm not necessarily one of those people, but I'd love to hear what you guys think. Uh, Greg, you go first. Well, I was joking earlier that I could talk for a half an hour about this story, and really 30 seconds is going to be difficult. But um, <laughs> what I like about it, we mentioned this earlier, that it, it's a really good story for Susan. Um, her telepathic ability, which is very rarely mentioned, unfortunately, just in the, in the show in general, is central to the story. There's that great scene where she's ready to disobey the doctor and, and go off to help the, the sensorites, but ultimately she still goes back to her grandfather. Um, it's, it's an interesting story for her. And I, I wish there had been more like that for her character because as a concept, she's possibly the most interesting Doctor Who companion character. I mean, she's the doctor's granddaughter. You know, we've never... We've never really explored the, the significance of that looking back. And she's a Time Lord, but she has these abilities that, you know, we haven't seen other Time Lords have. And, and, and it, it just feels so, so underexplored. And, and, and so often in, in this season, she's just reduced to being helpless and screaming and crying out for Ian or Barbara or the Doctor. And I can understand why Carol Ann Ford got got tired of that and, and, and had wanted to do more. And this is a story that, despite the fact that it's not the most interesting Doctor Who story ever told, it's it doesn't have enough plot for six episodes. It's repetitive. The, the twist at the end, I, I guess, is fine. But I just... If, it, if we could at least take... You know, what we got is the character work in this story. And we could have had something like that for Susan every every few weeks. I think that would have just made everything a lot better. Yeah, I think you're right. And it, it must have got frustrating for Carol Ann Ford to not receive material like this. Not necessarily every week, but just even on a semi-regular basis. Um, as far as I'm aware, this the psychic ability thing hasn't been particularly explored in sort of expanded media either. I can't sort of immediately think of any big finishes that sort of uh, latch onto it. I think the Susan's War set touches on it, I think. Uh, yes, you're right, actually, because they return to the Sensphere, don't they? Yes. I haven't got as far as listening to the Susan's War set, but there's also in the Companion Chronicles, it's not in one of the Susan Companion Chronicles, but it's in Ian's... Um, hang on, I'm mentally blanking on the name. What's it called? Um, the Transit of Venus. And Susan's psychic abilities are, you know, spoilers for that story. They're what's having things go odd with Ian and him hearing things that people haven't said. It's actually Susan trying to communicate with him subconsciously. And so I think they did a good job bringing it back and um, using it there. But, yeah, other than that's the only story I can think of other than Sense Rights itself where it's been a major um, component. Uh, yeah, you're absolutely right. Uh, Transit of Venus, it's it's a very good story, but like you say, there's there's Susan's barely in it, actually. Um, 
but that that sort of influence she has over it with these abilities um it's fantastic um yeah um your thoughts on the sense of rights jimmy i think it's a very underrated story it's a Obviously, it's probably the poorer one of the season. I don't think it's that controversial to say that. But um, it, even then, it still has some great moments. I mean, the whole creeping terror of the first couple of episodes is they're wondering what's going on and they haven't met the sensorites yet. They're just all scared and terrified and running around in circles. It's brilliantly atmospheric. And then they do a good job with handling Barbara's absence. They... Um, they bring the rest of them to the sense sphere and they handle that pretty well. And I think the other thing they do that's um, very clever and that you wouldn't expect of a 60s show is when they need one of the TARDIS crew to get poisoned to bring the plot forward, they don't go, oh, we'll just poison the weak little girl or whatever and do Susan or we'll poison the old man and bring, you know, he's the main character, we'll make it tougher for him. They actually go and they poison the strong one Ian and they, you know, put him in the background instead. And I think he does a good job handling the dynamic and the performance of Ian being vulnerable and weak and it's something very different for him and it's good that it gives the Doctor and Susan more of a chance to shine and, yeah, I think they... I think the story's certainly better than its reputation and that the sense rights culture is handled well. I mean, there's, you know, flaws, obviously, that whole bit where they realise they look alike and I never thought of that. It sounds a bit weird and silly, but, I mean the way you look at it, like, to them, they all, you know, they're probably noticing differences in their appearances that we wouldn't notice, but they, they're not surprised that they look alike. They're surprised that they look alike to these other people. Like, they probably think, oh, they're so different that, you know, um, it's sort of, yeah, I think that that line gets um, used to beat the story a bit, and I think it sort of does make a little bit more sense in context. I think it's also sort of fairly undermined by the fact that um, the city administrator is sort of notably more portly, to say it politely, than the other censorites. Um, he is sort of very distinctive. And if I remember correctly, it is the city administrator they're talking about uh, during that sequence. Um, I, I like censorites. It's, it doesn't work particularly well watched as a full sort of three hour story but it's you know as Greg has said previously they weren't meant to be watched that way and if you break them up and if you watch them bit by bit there's an awful lot in there to enjoy and it is good that Susan kind of got her own story to to be the the stronger character um we'll move on then we'll move on to the final story of the season uh the reign of terror which, as I said at the start, it, it is my favourite of the season. I think that uh, by this stage, Doctor Who is confident, it's established itself, it's still willing to sort of push uh, certain boundaries in terms of how dark it's willing to go and how how much jeopardy um, the characters are presented with. Uh, but I, I, I just love it. It's got backstabbing, it's got horrible cells with rats in, it's got an absolutely amazing cliffhanger at the end of the first episode. Um, and uh, the French Revolution is a particularly bloody period of history and one that is was full of sort of genuine peril. So to place these characters within that, I think is particularly effective. Uh, your thoughts, Greg? 
So I think there's a lot to like here. I do very much like what you're talking about, the just the pervasive sense of danger that's throughout it and recognizing that this historical era was a scary time to live through and that you know putting a, a foot wrong could lead to your execution, essentially. Um, I, I really like the first episode. You know, it follows in the footsteps of so many other uh, stories this season where most of the first episode is taken up with just the TARDIS crew exploring a new location, except here it's actually a historical period. Um, I like the grittiness of it. Um, I do, I, I thought it was interesting, you know, we, we talked, Jimmy touched on this briefly about Keys of Marinus, you know, there's there's another point where there's an implied threat of sexual violence towards Barbara from the jailer which is something that you see a few times in this season. And then the show perhaps wisely stays away from it going forward. Um, so there is a lot that I find intriguing about it. My, my issue with it, and again, this comes back to the idea that we shouldn't be watching these things all at once. But you know, the story seems to be setting itself up to have three parallel tracks going on. The doctor is going to be on his own exploring the French countryside. Um, Ian is going to be in prison, and then Barbara and Susan are, you know, rescued on their way to the guillotine and taken to um, the counter-revolutionaries. Um, but rather than having all of that just finally come together in the final episode, they sort of all come together in episode four, and then we just kind of send the characters back and forth to those different settings in different orders. And for me by the end it had gotten quite repetitive and 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 to that in that in that sense it's it's not my favorite story of the first season but again i think there's enough you know that's worthwhile here that it's it's definitely worth a look for sure um i also really like the the animation that was done um i like the style of it it's kind of this odd like rotoscope form almost um and it's, it's a good recreation of two missing episodes that most likely we will never see again because we know where they were and that they got blown up. Uh, yeah, and a real shame that they did. Um, but I, I agree with you. The animation for this one is fantastic. Um, and if I remember correctly, it was the first animation to come along after quite a significant gap. I think we got the invasion. And then Reign of Terror came later, but it was a good few years later. Um, and it, it was great to see those two episodes, because up until that point, all we had to work with were uh, reconstructions and so on. Um, Jimmy, your thoughts on the Reign of Terror? For me personally, I'll start with the animation and say, I don't think it was really that well done. I think, the, I think it was clear that it was... Um, had obviously had a bit of a rough time working on it because you can tell that the second of the two animated episodes is certainly of a higher quality than the first. And, um, yeah, I'm glad it was animated. I love the missing episode animations, but I think this is definitely one of the poorer ones. I think I'd only rate the web of fear as lower than it, but it, it does well enough. It helps you see the story. It lets you see it in context. And so, yeah, it's great, but I definitely wouldn't rate it as one of the higher ones personally but um yeah it's a good story and um i think it does less well by the individual regulars but um 
overall, I mean, the Doctor gets some great stuff. He gets the whole, you know, knocking out the guy on the road who's running the workforce and, you know, tricking him and that's brilliant. And posing as high up and, you know, making a meal of it, it's really good. Um, but obviously the other regulars, I think, get handled a bit less well. And, again, this is one of the ones where um, I sort of differ from fandom a bit on it. Susan, I think in the scenes where she's freaking out while they're caught in the prison about, oh, but there's rats and not wanting to get out. Like lots of people are like, oh, but that's stupid. You're better off escaping. But I mean, it's set in, you know, um, a part of history where there's lots of, you know, plagues and diseases and stuff. I mean, it's not much use escaping if you end up with something like bubonic and dying in horrible agony anyway. I mean, so it sort of makes sense to sort of wait for a rescue rather than, try to go through that. So I think she was a bit more justified than fandom gives her credit for in that scene. And so, yeah, I felt a bit sorry for the reputation she gets from it. But, yeah, overall it's a good story, not one of the best, but thoroughly enjoyable. And, yeah, I don't think it handles the regulars as well as the other stories, but still good. And especially the part where it does handle them good, I've got to say, is in the very first episode when they're trying to talk to the doctor around after he just wants to dump them and leave and it's like, oh, but wouldn't it be better to pass as friends? Let's go to the pub. And the it, Doctor Adventures is like, oh, all right. And it just sort of shows the team, you know, the earlier seas in the season, if something like this had happened, then the Doctor would have been like, nope, stuff you, you're gone, push him out the door and head straight off. But he is like, he's not really that angry at them. He sort of warms back to them and is willing to make amends. And so it just shows how much progress he's made over the course of the season. Absolutely, yeah. It um, it sort of leads on to the uh, the next thing I was going to ask you. So just to wrap up um, this episode, I was going to sort of uh, ask sort of what your thoughts are on how the character of the Doctor develops throughout this first series because he's in a very different place, as you say, by the end of Reign of Terror than he is at the start of An Earthly Child. Um, but also, is the Doctor's sort of evolution into the character we know complete by the end of this season or does that does that continue through the next one and beyond uh so greg you go first i don't think it's complete no and i i say that because honestly this is where we've you know described this as the end of the first season because there was a break of not that long, but several weeks between uh, this and Planet of Giants. But in terms of, you know, how the show was produced and, and how it was made, the real quote-unquote season finale is the Dalek invasion of Earth. Um, because that sort of completes the Doctor's arc in terms of how he relates to the other characters and, you know, how he eventually comes to the decision to let Susan go. Um, so I, I don't think at this point at the end of Reign of Terror that we're quite, we're quite to the, to the end of the Doctor's story. You know, I think once we get into, you know, season two and you get into the rescue and you see the Doctor's relationship with Vicky and Ian and Barbara is still there. I think that is a much more traditional, like what we think of as a, as a Doctor Who TARDIS crew. Um, but we're almost there. Um, the Reign of Terror, like we were saying you definitely see the Doctor have some of those individual Doctorish heroic moments, and, and the character's a million miles away from the enigmatic, dangerous figure that we saw in the first few stories. So we're almost there. Uh, I think by the certainly by the end of season two, we're we're where we need to be. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, that there is that. I mean, it's it's often easy to forget that actually season one was filmed all the way up to the end of Dalek Invasion of Earth. So yeah, you're absolutely right. There's still still a little way to go. Uh, what do you think, Jimmy? I think the Doctor definitely has made a huge progress on the way to being how he ends up over the season. But yeah, I'd absolutely agree that it's not finished by any means. I think it, it sort of very much ties into Barbara and Ian. They're the reason that he ends up as as he does. I mean, if he'd repaired the TARDIS a day earlier and left with just Susan left from an unearthly child, it'd be a completely different show. The Doctor would probably be the, that much more selfish and... Um, conniving and more cares only about himself and her character but Barbara and Ian really bring him to the mark and turn him into the character that he's intended to be and I think that yeah for me I'd say the character development is not complete but um, certainly well on its way would be when they've gone and you get into the time meddler and you know he's now that they're gone he doesn't sort of well not not need them as such anymore but he he's you know they've done all they can for him and he's become the hero that he will be and so I think it's yeah his arc really ties in strongly to theirs and by the time they've gone that's when they've made enough of a difference and that's when he's sort of become not fully but almost fully who he will be I think that's a very interesting point actually um and you could argue that perhaps the doctor letting Ian and Barbara go at the end of the chase is again one of those defining moments where he kind of reaches who he needs to be sort of very heavily defined by uh, the exits of that original TARDIS team which is it's a shame then really that companion exits get a little bit rubbish for a while after that um, but that's something we'll talk about in later seasons uh, that is all we've got time for uh, it's been absolutely great discussing season one with you guys. It's it's a season with a lot to offer. It is still Doctor Who finding its feet, and it's nothing like what uh, it would go on to be and what everybody has come to know and love. But I think it's it started in, incredibly strong, and it started experimental, and it challenged not just TV audiences at the time, but TV production straight away. It was looking at ways to um, sort of push boundaries a little bit in terms of what could be achieved uh, through the medium of TV, I think it's fair to say. Um, I think that um, it definitely shows just how much TV has changed over the years since then. But I think a lot of people, when the new series started, were like, oh, Doctor Who's got character development now. And it's like... You obviously hadn't seen the Hartnell era. I mean, things change over the course of the classic series, but I think character development is a really strong part of the first two seasons in particular, and hopefully um, eventually when they come out on the collection, more newer fans who haven't seen it before will learn that, you know, the show may not have had the production values or such of the modern series, but character development was a strong part of it right from the start. I think the uh, Hartnell's last lines in, or the lines in Reign of Terror, it all started out as a mild curiosity in the junkyard and now it's turned out to be quite a great spirit of adventure. Honestly, that sums up the whole show. Absolutely, yeah. It's uh, it's a perfect time uh, for that speech to occur, really, because it really, as we talked about before, shows how far the Doctor has developed. 
Um, that is all we've got time for, though. So uh, thank you very much to both of you for joining us. And uh, I know you're back for season two, aren't you, Jimmy? And Greg, you'll be back with us sometime soon as well, I'm sure. Uh, so thank you and goodbye to Greg. Farewell. And thank you and goodbye to Jimmy. Thank you very much. I'm looking forward to covering the rest of the Hartnell era. Indeed, we'll uh, we'll get around to that soon. But for now, it's goodbye. Goodbye.